I've heard it this week once, and I've heard it many times before, that sometimes people find it hard, and I find it hard to find a place that has balance. Some of you can maybe relate to that. And the balance we're talking about is this. Sometimes you find places that lights encourage people to get excited about the Lord, but it feels shallow. It just feels kind of cheap. Other times you have places that are really uh, good on, on preaching the Word and state and, and, and uh, being real with, uh, with, with the Word of God, but the worship's really dead. And our heart's desire is really, to, we reject the false antithesis that you either got to be good on the Word or vibrant in worship, but you can't be both. What we want to do is, is to, be, uh, to strive to be as faithful to the Word of God and preaching the Word of God without compromise, at the same time encouraging just the deepest, most profound, which I think can be the most exciting sort of worship imaginable. And to stay away from any sort of shallowness, uh, any sort of people manipulation or anything like that, but just to be real. I'm glad for a place where it's okay to be real. Uh, you know, I, uh, this last week, in fact, the person may be here, if you are, you'll know the story, uh, but my son and I went out ice fishing. We don't really go out ice fishing, but we go out pretending like we're going to go ice fishing. We never get around to it because it happens on a whim, and he, he's got a little pole that he got. It was a string, and we don't have any bait, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> we never find a hole to fish in anyways, but it's fun to go out and look at the ice houses and, and pretend like you're going to go fishing. Well, this time he talked me into driving onto the lake. I've never, never done that before. Uh, it was Lake Jarvis. And so we went down there and said, Dad, just drive on there, you know. And I knew I know it was solid enough, but I've never driven my car in a lake, so it was kind of a fun thing. Well, we get out there for some kind of tentative. But before too long, I'm doing wheelies, you know. And we're like, woo, you know. And we're just having a blast, you know. Just, you got the whole lake, you know. You can do whatever you want. So I'm out there, you know, spinning around. And, well, I run into a snowbank. <laughs> it's like, I didn't think that would happen. And we're in the middle of Lake Jarvis, stuck really, really bad. And I'm not moving an inch. At 8 o'clock at night or so, and uh, in fact, at first I thought we were sinking. I looked out, and we hit a deep snowbank. I look out, and the ground was closer to the door, so I, I tell Nathan, bail out! You know, like we're, <laughs> we do! Anyways, to make a long story short, to make a long story short, uh, we, we couldn't, uh, way on the other side of the lake, I saw these lights, so I walked over there to this lake, and there's this guy out there ice fishing. Great guy, nice guy, I hope you're here. I appreciate you. Um, and if you're here, I... I wanted to send him a gift, and I lost his address. So if you're here, you see me after service. But anyways, I told him, you know, I don't think things like this happen by accident. No one is this stupid intentionally. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I started talking about the Lord a little bit and just started sharing with him as we're pushing this car out. It took about an hour. He went to help us, and, and uh, it took, a, took a quite some time. So I started talking a little bit about the Lord or whatever. And he said, you know, I, I used to go to church, but he says... Church is okay, but, you know, it's just, it feels too perfect for me. And uh, my son, uh, God bless him, he's going to be evangelist. He says, you're welcome to attend our church. It's not perfect. <laughs> Isn't that great? Nathan, the little evangelist. And, you know, and that's right. It's just a place where, in fact, this morning I'm going to talk about a problem I got with a, with a text, because I think we can be real about that. But none of the shallow, artificial, you know, let's pretend like the world's rosy sort of things. You get excited about Jesus and you deal with reality. And if you keep that balance, you can't go very much wrong. Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing what, uh, a thing that we started last week where Paul is talking about what it is to live out the reality of who we are in Christ in terms of relationships. He first talked about marriage, then he talks about children. And now he's going to talk about masters and slaves. 
And he says this in verse 5. It's printed in your bulletin if you want to follow. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. I want you for a moment to pretend like you're an African man that's just been transported from Africa and you're living in Alabama on some farm in, in 1822 and your slave owner reads you that. That ought to bother you. Well, I guess the Lord says I'm supposed to obey. Was the Lord against the Civil War? Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. i got to obey my master like he was Christ. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Lucky for the master, he happens to be free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. Father, uh, God, I, I pray that uh, the, the disturbance I have with this verse, that you could use it as a catalyst to bring about what you want to have happen here this morning. And Lord, I believe that what you want to have happen, I feel it very deeply, and you're raising up people who feel the same, is to begin to cause your bride here in the Twin Cities to look the way your bride is supposed to look, and your bride is supposed to look multicultural. And Lord, to begin to tear down some of the diabolic walls of racial animosity uh, that have been created in our culture. And Lord God, I would pray that this morning would be a freeing time, that, uh, that Lord, ways in which your word has been abused would be corrected, Lord God, that your people would be motivated, that I would be motivated to begin to strive and pray and endeavor to work for the kind of church, Lord, to make the church the kind of church you want it to be. God, let it, let, there's so much that needs to be done here, and we can't do a thing without your spirit. So Lord, let it be done. Let your spirit move here and throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's not very often, in fact, it's never that I uh, structure a sermon around a national holidays. National holidays just are not that important to me. Even Christmas was just sort of a, I happened to land on a verse that I could talk about Christmas with, but uh, I, I like to just sort of plow forward in the Word of God and not take too many breaks and structure sermons around gun control day or whatever day you have. Um, there are preachers who like to do that. I'm not one of them. But it, it happens once in a while. In fact, the last couple times it's happened that uh, the, the text that we're reading happens to sort of coordinate in some way with the holiday. Now, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. I think it's, the, what is it, the third or fourth annual Martin Luther King Day? Um, third, fourth, fifth? I don't, I don't know, but... It's a day when our, we as a country uh, set aside a time to recognize a man with a lot of vision. As I think about that, I ask myself this question, and maybe you do too. To what degree has the vision of Martin Luther King, when he preached, I had a dream, and let freedom ring, and he preached that stuff, to what degree has that become a reality in the culture, and even more poignantly, to what degree has it become a reality in the church? There has been a lot of achievement, I believe, on the, on the whole racial issue in terms of job opportunities and things of that sort. There's been some improvement, perhaps. But I don't think I would be alone this morning if, if I share with you that I, I don't believe that our culture has made very much progress at all, perhaps none, in terms of really bringing about racial harmony in this country. It seems to me that we as a country, and this is all too true of the church, that we're very much characterized by racial tension, racial animosity. It seems to me that right about now, it's about as bad as I can ever remember being. 
just not getting along, and, and uh, suspicion and tension and anxiety all over the place. It seems to me that the ways in which our culture has tried to devise to correct this problem have not been all that positive. Maybe they're, maybe they're good, well-intentioned, maybe they're not, but we're not doing a whole lot, I don't believe, in terms of bringing about racial reconciliation in our country. Certainly focusing on, the, on, on obsessing with propriety and improper use of terms doesn't help a whole lot. Even talking like this, maybe it makes some of you nervous that I'm going to talk on this subject. It's kind of like, uh-oh, uh-oh, t- tension time. And there's a part of me that worries because I'm not good at, 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 at doing linguistic rules. Do you say Native American? Do you say uh, American Indian? Uh, do you say Oriental? Do you say Asian? What is the proper word? Do you say black? Do you say African American? Um, you know, I, I, I just don't remember what the latest thing is. Do you say uh, physically challenged? Do you say handicapped? And I, I have no problems if there's somebody that I know that says, you know what, I would really like to be referred to this way. It's like, okay. But when there comes up to be kind of a rule that's supposed to fix a problem, I don't think it works very well. In fact, it kind of makes people more tense. One thing I know is this, is that when you've got a genuine relationship with somebody, you don't have to focus on these sort of external things. You may, they may say, you know, I'd rather you talk this way or that way, but it's no big deal because you've got the relationship there. And the fact that you fixate so much on, on, on labels, you fixate so much on the way you talk to, about people and, and towards people or whatever, just shows that you're trying to compensate for a lack of relationship. What ends up happening is you have a lot of no-talk rules and, and a lot of problems and tensions and whatnot get submerged. And I think we're dealing with a, with, with a culture that's a whole lot like an alcoholic dysfunctional family where there's a lot of tension going on, but everyone tries not to notice. And one, one, of, the things, one of the things that the O.J. Simpson trial, I know you're sick of that and so am I, but, but, but it has something to say to us here, is it broke a no-talk rule. All of a sudden, it became painfully obvious that Blacks and whites see things very different here. 80% of all whites, or almost 80%, thought that O.J. Simpson was guilty. About 80% of all blacks thought that he was innocent. And what that reveals is, man, we got really different ways of looking at a number of things, not least of which is the power of the police force or the character of the police force. It's like, all of a sudden, someone pulled the cover back and, and we... We saw, we, we couldn't deny what we maybe suspected was there all along, and that is that there's quite a gulf between these two different races, between this, these two different cultures. I, when this thing came up, I'm, I, you know, I, I'll let you in on a secret, I'm white. And uh, I thought O.J. Simpson was guilty all along. I just thought he did it. I, I, you know, that, that DNA evidence, when the DNA evidence came out, I thought this guy, this guy is guilty. I really was convinced of that. And I thought they'd find him guilty. About a week before the uh, jury was let out to come to their verdict, I was talking to Norm about it. And, uh, you know, kind of talking around whatever. I said, he's guilty. They're going to find him guilty. It's going to be a quick jury, and this guy's going to go to prison. And I'm happy for him. He goes, well, he may be guilty, but they're not going to find him guilty. I go, what? He goes, they're not going to find him guilty. Why not? He says, because, see, to you, it's beyond a reasonable doubt that the police could have had this conspiracy. To them, it's well within a reasonable doubt that the police had this conspiracy. He says, and if you had had your dad pulled over 16 times and frisked by some white policeman for no good reason at all, maybe you'd be inclined to agree with that. He wasn't saying angrily, he was just kind of sharing what the situation is. And if you or somebody that you knew was in a situation where maybe false charges were trumped up, where maybe they were caught in some kind of a, 
uh, conspiracy, or where if you, every time you walked into a store, all of a sudden the security guards are paying extra special attention, you have this kind of tense relationship there. It's not at all beyond a reasonable doubt. When you get a person like Mark Furman leading up the investigation, it's very possible that there could have been a conspiracy there. So I said, well, okay, maybe they'll, you know, maybe, maybe they will deliberate longer than I thought, but they're still going to find them innocent. But it's going to be a hard decision they're going to come to. And he goes, no, it's, it's going to be a real quick one, Greg. And they're going to find him innocent. He called the shot. You see, there's this great big gulf there. And then here's what happens. We see the gulf. We recognize the gulf. We can't deny the gulf. But rather than try to understand why do they see, uh, why, do, why does the one group see the situation so much different than we see the situation, what very quickly happens is either you go back into the no-talk rule and you decide not to talk about it because it kind of makes you nervous, or... You just get the label racist. Well, well, they're racist. Why? They, 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 they let off any black man because he's black. Or, or they'd accuse any black man because he's black. And, and, and we end up caricaturing, stereotyping each other rather than trying to find out why we have these differences so maybe we can begin to work at a problem. Instead of that, you just cover the whole thing up and things get worse and people steam and, and suspicions brew. We're in a situation now where that, I think, very much characterizes our culture. And to me, it's kind of scary. The other thing is I'm not very optimistic. I'm not very optimistic at all that the culture is going to be able to fix this one. I don't know how you can come up with a rule. You can come up with rules on quotas and all those kind of things, and maybe they're okay. But one thing I know is that that does not help the situation. Relationships are not fixed by rules. So I don't know how our culture is really going to fix this thing. But I do know this, that I I believe with all my heart that this situation that we are in with our culture presents the church with a unique moment, a unique window of opportunity to display the glory of God by doing something that the culture finds impossible to do. And if we can seize this moment and through the power of God and the Spirit of God, and I believe, and I'll talk about this shortly with all my heart, that this is what God is in fact calling us to do. If we can demonstrate a kind of love that transcends the racial tension of our culture that's going to say something to the culture. It's going to witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. And I believe with all my heart that we have got to do that. But then here's the problem. And we try to be real here. Try to be honest here. The real thing is that this verse seems to go against everything I just said, doesn't it? I got a problem with this verse. This verse bugs me. I, I don't know if you, I, I'm going to be all out about this, but I sometimes, uh, here I'm a preacher. I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe, and I believe the whole Bible. I believe the whole Bible, but some of it really bugs me, okay? Do you ever have that? You read a verse that's like, no, oh, I don't like that verse at all. I don't know what to do with it. I gotta th- sometimes I just got to put them on the back burner and I'll say, I'll figure that out next year, you know? But sometimes it just sort of hits me, and, and this is one of those things. This is the kind of verse I would never in my life preach on, Unless I made a commitment publicly that I'm going to preach through the whole book of Ephesians and deal with every verse. It'd be a whole lot easy. You know, if you're preaching topically, you never have to have a topic. Let's talk about slavery today, you know. So we've got to deal with it. Is it the case, you know, picture yourself as a 1922 African down in Alabama on a slave uh, farm and, and, and your master, it amazes me that the African people ever became Christians when, when, when they got the word of God from their masters who were preaching this kind of stuff to them. This verse was used to justify slavery, folks. And you've got to ask yourself the question, is God not against that? Does God, does God really want slaves to obey their masters? Would God in, 1920, in 1822 have told an African man who wanted to be free, no, you've just got to obey your master. In fact, obey him like he was the Lord. Okay, what can we say about that? <laughs> Great, now give us the answer, would you? you I guess the Bible's not the Word of God. Goodbye. 
Three things here, three things, just to set this in context. Teaching moment, three things. Number one, the kind of slavery that Paul's talking about, it's, it's not good, it's bad, it's degrading. By contemporary standards, it's disgusting. But you've got to know this, it is not at all the kind of slavery that we had going on in America 120 years ago. The kind of slavery we had going on before the Civil War, before the abolition period, was racial racially motivated slavery. It was based on a theory that a certain group of people, i.e. whites, are better than a certain other kind of people, i.e. blacks. And uh, it, it was based on the idea that one group is closer to the animals than the other group. It was racially motivated. In the first century, slavery didn't have any of those connotations at all. Slavery came about because as the Roman Empire uh, grew, it would conquer people. Now, what do you do with conquer pe conquered people? You don't trust them because they'll conspire against you. So what do you do? You can throw them into prison, but we can't afford to have all these people in prison. You can kill them all, but that doesn't seem very right either. So what you do is you, slave, you sell them into slavery, usually to wealthy people who are looking for some uh, uh, folks to help out around the house. And uh, so you sell them into slavery. That way they can begin to gradually, by osmosis, pick up the Roman culture and become Roman, in fact. That was their way of integrating people into the Roman Empire. You've got to know some things about it. Number one, it wasn't racially motivated. It had nothing to do with that. In fact, Ancient people thought in terms of different cultures and different nationalities, but they never thought in terms of races. That never was a question. There never was in the ancient world an idea, this category of race, by which you could try to uh, hit on different characteristics of people. There's different nationalities, but that's different, that's different than different races. This was not motivated like this. This was simply a reality of war. A second thing is this. These slaves were not treated like animals. In fact, they were paid. They were paid. They weren't paid a whole lot, but they were paid. The, the, this verse would apply much better to our present situation of employer-employee kind of relationships than it does to the slavery trade uh, before the, the Civil War. Because these people were paid. Not only that, but they could eventually buy their way out of freedom. I mean, buy their way out of slavery and, and purchase freedom. They could even, if they saved up their money, and it would take a long time to do it because they weren't paid much, but they could buy their citizenship. And that tells you that what was moving this kind of slavery was not some kind of racial idea about who's better or who's worse. This was a situation of the time based on war, based on the reality of a fallen world. It was one of those things that, that were there. But it still was bad. It still was degrading. These people still had no rights while they were slaves. And so the question is, and this leads to my second point, why would God endorse that much? Why would God tell a slave to obey the master? Or Paul tells uh, Onesiris to go back to, he's a runaway slave. How good it could have been if he ran away. Paul tells him to go back to his master. So the question is, why would, why would God inspire that? And this brings us to a real important biblical principle. It's very important when you're reading the Bible to make a distinction between what is God's perfect will and what is God's accommodating will. What's wrong with fundamentalism is it thinks that it can quote any verse it wants, just any, meeny, miny, mo, and, and create a rule that you're supposed to follow today out of it. But some things in the Bible are there because God is accommodating His will to a fallen situation, not because it's what God wills ideally. God is a God, and if you know God very well, if you know Christ very well, you know this about Him. He meets us halfway. He accommodates. He's willing to work with us even when we fall, even when we screw up, even when things are bad. He starts with where we're at. And so it is with cultures. You can't just come into cultures and, and overhaul the whole thing overnight. God's principle of transformation is always to plant principles. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What God does is he plants seeds of transformation that ultimately bear fruit throughout the whole culture. Until then, he's willing to put up with a lot of grimy stuff in order to transform the culture out of that grimy stuff. For example, 
The Lord tells us his ideal, his perfect plan is for a man and a woman to be united to each other. One husband, one wife for all their life. But in a fallen world, this happens. You get agricultural cultures that uh, fight one another. They kill off three-fourths of the men. And now you got women who have to raise the kids. They can't work all the land. The result is that the kids start to starve, the women start to starve. And so the question is, in fact, usually in life, it's not a question of what is the ideal, God's ideal will, and what is evil, but rather what is bad and what is worse. It's bad that you have to have polygamy, but it's worse that you have starving women and starving children. So the Lord says, you know what, for right now, let's go with polygamy. He's willing to work with us. The ideal's unattainable, well then, then here's the next best thing. And so you find throughout the Old Testament, God endorsing polygamy, not as a part of his ideal will. He's not saying, yay, I wish that every husband had 15 wives. That's not his ideal. He loves monogamy, but in some cultural situations, having polygamy is preferable to having starving kids and wives, so he goes with that. It's his accommodating will, but all the while he's trying to move the culture, move the fallen world such that that is no longer necessary, so monogamy can be an ideal. God, we know, wants a man and a woman to live together for all of their life. God hates divorce. But he also knows that in a fallen world, sometimes it's going to happen. So he doesn't just say, well, then that's your problem. You deal with it. But the Lord says, you find this in Deuteronomy. He says, look, if you're going to get divorced, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Now, it's all sad. It's all tragic. It wouldn't happen if it wasn't for sin, but it happens. So there's a right way and a wrong way. He tries to, as it were, Christianize a bad situation. In this case, women were being discarded left and right. So he comes up with some rules in Deuteronomy 22 that says you can't get a divorce that easy. You've got to think about it before you do it. He draws parameters around it. It's God's accommodating will. It's very important for us to, to as, as you read the Bible, to make that distinction and not eternalize something that God is merely accommodating. Don't eternalize something that God is... It's not God's will for us to be preaching polygamy because that was a provisional thing for a time. It's not God's will that we go around saying yay to divorce. It's God's will that we deal with it in a humane way, but it's not God's will that we go preaching it as though it was a good thing, even though God allows it. I don't believe it's God's will that women have to keep quiet in the church, though in the first century that's one of the things that had to happen. So in, the, in, in that context, the Bible says women keep silent in the church, but don't eternalize that. Don't make that into a great part of the, the good news. Hey, here's the good news. Women can never preach. Women can never even talk in church. No, that's a first century bad thing that we want to be growing out of. And so it is with slavery. Slavery was a part of the cultural world in the first century. You just can't overturn it. It wasn't the kind of slavery we're familiar with, but it was still a bad kind of slavery. But what is God supposed to do with this little church? The church at this time is very, very small, a real, 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 real tiny minority. Are they going to go around preaching, you know, trying to overturn the whole culture? Well, the message of God's good news is not going to be heard if they do it. So what God does, he says, you Christians, the way you do slavery, do it differently. Do it differently. He, he tries to Christianize a bad situation. But it is not God's ideal. And that leads to the third principle and the most important principle, and it's this. The way to know what is God's ideal will is to look at basic principles that reflect the heart of God preached throughout the whole Bible. Look at how, how does God express himself throughout the whole Bible. When you do that, what you end up with is this. From beginning to end, the Bible makes it very clear that people ought not to be slaves of other people. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear on some eternal principles that we are never in any situation to lord over one another. Not in the church. In Genesis chapter 1, start right from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that we were made in the image of God. We were made in the image of God. And part of what that image of God is, 
We're made, we reflect God. Now, how do we reflect God? The Bible says we reflect, part of what, what, what it means to reflect the image of God is that we have dominion. The Lord says, I made you in my image. You shall have dominion over the plants and the animals. We are lords of the earth. We are the stewards of the earth. We're the caretakers of the earth. We are supposed to be the bosses of our pets and the bosses of the rest of the world around us. That's part of our image of God. But that implies that part of our image of God is not to be bosses of other people because they're also in the image of God. The image of God, the dignity of a human being, is preserved when they are lord over the animals and lord over the plant life, lord over the earth. But they're not lord over another person and another person isn't lord over them. One of the central principles you find throughout the whole Bible, this comes up in Genesis chapter 3, is the principle of freedom. I believe it's one of the, freedom and grace, I think, are the two most powerful concepts in the whole of human history. And Genesis chapter 3 presents it like this. God puts us in the garden, but he gives us a choice. We can choose to obey him or choose to disobey him. What does that tell you? It tells you this. God would rather have, he's willing to take the risk of freedom. He'd rather risk rebellion than have mechanical obedience. Think about it. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God, part of who we are, it's essential to our sense of personhood is that we are free. We are self-determining beings. God makes us that way. We can choose to follow God. We can choose not to follow God. We can choose to live our life this way or we can choose to live our life that way. And if God Almighty gives us this freedom right from the very beginning, he gives us a choice. Is that If that's something that's valuable for God and he's willing to put up with it even when we rebel against him, then we also must forever be about freedom and be coming against things that deny freedom. Even when there are people who are going to use that freedom in ways that we don't think they should use it, we've got to be for their right to do that because God gives them their right. You understand what I'm saying? Throughout church history, there's been this attempt to try to coerce people to look Christian even when they weren't. What good is that? You haven't got them more saved. And if God gives them the freedom not to become a Christian, how can we do other than that? If people, this is why I, I, I'm really weary about Christian censorship. If, if God gives that freedom, we need to be for freedom, even when it means having the possibility of rebelling against it. And therefore, coming against everything that would qualify that freedom, coming against all things that put people in bondage, coming against all things that take away people's dignity, coming against all things that take away people's decision-making power, including things like, 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 like alcoholism and pornography and slavery, anything that would... Any theory that would subjugate one person to another has got to be, in Jesus' name, rebuked. Because it goes against fundamental principles about who we are made in the image of God. There's another thing I want to throw out that deals with this whole idea of, of racial reconciliation. And is this. In Genesis chapter 10, you find a very profound and much ignored story that we need to pay attention to. It's the story of Babel. You know the story? People, all of humanity, tried to conspire against God. God had just several hundred years earlier sent a flood. You'd think they would have, you know, learned their lesson, but they, they conspired against God, and now instead of sending a flood or something of that sort, what God did as a form of punishment for this, for this sin was he confused their languages. In Genesis chapter 10, you actually, you actually find this story in a lot of ancient literature about people trying to erect some kind of giant edifice to try to get to God. It was a form of rebellion. And God there confused their languages so they could no longer conspire to build this building to reach God. It's a bizarre story, but, but it, you know, a lot of things in the Bible are bizarre, so you go with it. Now here's the thing. Up to that point, humanity was one. We all came from Adam, and then we all came from Noah. We are one. We, have one, we had one gene pool. And it was only in Genesis chapter 10 that as a result of sin... 
People began to go their own way. They began to, this is where segregation was created, folks, and it happened because of human sin. It was not part of God's ideal. It was a provisional thing to keep humanity from getting worse than it was. And here's where we started to go to different lands. We started to selectively breed according to our phenotypes, according to how we look. And this is where the different appearances of different quote-unquote races came from. A concept, by the way, that the Bible is unfamiliar with. It talks about different nations but doesn't have an idea for different races. But here's where the different characteristics begin to be developed. What we got to know is that that wasn't part of God's ideal. God didn't necessarily want that to happen. It was a result of human sin. What you got to know also is this. That sin happened because people were trying to work their way to God. But when God came down to us, he begins to reverse that whole process. When we try to build our way to God, we get segregated. When God builds his way down to us by becoming a man and dying on the cross, that segregation begins to be reversed. And that's why Ephesians chapter 2, praise God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that when he died on the cross, we got to hear this so loud. When he died on the cross, he tore down the wall of enmity that was there between the different peoples, between the Jew and the Gentile. He spilt his blood for this reason. Among other reasons to reconcile us with God, he also wanted us to be reconciled to one another, and he paid the price to do that. When God comes down to us, he reverses Babel by paying the price by, to, to create one new, the Bible says this in Ephesians 2, one new man, one new race, one new people who no longer have this silly segregated outer quarter-inch focus that started in the, in the Tower of Babel, but rather begin to recapture what it means to be made in the image of God and begin to re-realize the unity that God always wanted humanity to have. And that's also why, I want to say, dig this, dig this. Why on, 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 in, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit gets poured out, what happens? The Holy Spirit gets poured out. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and then he pours out his spirit. His spirit is his character embodying his people. And when his spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, the first thing that happens is people begin to speak in other tongues, and everyone who's around them, Christian and non-Christian alike, they begin to hear them praising God in their own language. That's significant. Because what it's saying there is that when the Holy Spirit is present, when the Holy Spirit gets poured out, the Tower of Babel is going to be, be reversed. And the division of languages and the division of cultures and the division of, of racial types is to be torn down as the Spirit of God begins to move among people. As God begins to reverse our sinful inclination to try to climb our way to God by coming down to us, that whole segregation thing begins to fall apart. And that's why Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says this, this Holy Spirit, this is going to be poured out upon all flesh, upon all flesh. Man, that would have to blow the Jews' mind so severely because they never thought in those terms, upon all flesh, upon male, upon female, upon Jew, upon Greek, upon religious lofty person, and upon the lowly, upon all flesh. Because you know what? God's, God's doing a new thing, and it's really an old thing. He's tearing down that Babel stuff, and he's creating a new people, one race. And that's why, you know what? If you're a believer, you belong to one race. You may be Native American, you may be African American, you may be like me, sort of Irish American. But what you are most importantly is Christian African American, Christian Native American, Christian Irish American, and the Christian is what has the focus. Amen. Amen. I feel led to say this, just to throw this out there. There's been some, it's been sort of a stigma of conservative Christians up till, well maybe it still is in some quarters, I don't know. I found a book at Bethel that, that was teaching this. It said that interracial marriages are wrong. Interracial marriages are wrong. People were never meant to, and then they say stuff like, you don't see red hens marrying white chickens. 
that kind of language is, is so, like, 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 like we should model our behavior after chickens. But here's the thing. If in fact, and now follow me on this, and I, I'm just going to throw this out there and let it land. Let it be a catalyst. Think about it. If in fact, God is reversing Babel, and Babel is what created all those, those, those differences. We went to different environments. We started selectively breeding, and we, and we developed different racial characteristics. If in fact, God is reversing that, it seems that interracial marriages are perfectly appropriate in a Christian context. That's reversing the Tower of Babel. At the very least, you'd have to say this, in a Christian context, the color of a person's skin should be about as, about as relevant as the color of their eyes and the color of their hair and the size of their bicep and every other physical characteristic you could look at. In other words, it's just should be, it's got to be something that's irrelevant. Folks, the church, our, the church in the Twin Cities, like the church in America, is about 98% segregated. And what that does, and this is what, what's the expression? Cooks my goose. But what that does is it robs, aside from other things, aside from just decency considerations, it robs God of glory. Amen? It robs God of glory because Jesus spilt his blood so that that would not be the case. We're against legalistic systems because they rob God of glory because we're saved by grace. One of the things that Christ accomplished on the cross of Calvary was that... Uh, um, that they, he spilled his blood so we could be saved for free. And grace is really important. When people understand what grace is, they glorify God all the more. And so we're against legalistic systems. And, 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 and I think it's good to come against any sort of system of belief that would deny that people can be healed by God's power because one of the provisions of the cross, one of the things that Christ died for was that we by his stripes could be made healed. The Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. And if God died for that, we need to proclaim that. We need to do that. We need to show off and brag on God by how he heals people, just like we brag on God by how he saves it by his grace. Well, if one of the things that Christ died for was the reconciliation of, of, of the races, the creating of one new humanity, so that his bride would display the marvelous, rich, and beautiful gene pool that he created humanity to have, if Christ took the trouble to die for that, we have got to take the trouble to work towards that, to pray towards that, and make that a reality in the body of Christ. Amen? It's not negotiable. It's got to happen. It's not an option. It's not an option. One of the things that excites me about Woodland Hills is that slowly, way too slowly, but i got to learn patience. But we're seeing that happening. And I, I, I want to challenge you this morning to be praying towards that and working towards that and praying that God will raise up people. He's beginning to do that and, and, uh, and, and bringing about a vision here of what, what Woodland Hills could be doing. There's such a wall of suspicion and animosity between the black church and the white church, the white church and the black church, and it is simply, it is simply unacceptable. It is simply unacceptable, and maybe one of the things God can use this ministry for is to begin to be a catalyst to, to tear that down. The final thing is this. Not only do we rob God of glory, but we lose a tremendous opportunity to show the world the reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, and I close with this. He says, Father, his last prayer, Father, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one. Why? Well, first of all, because I made them that way when I died for them. But also, he said, that the world may know that you have sent me. Our oneness is what proves to the world the reality of Jesus Christ. And when we simply mirror our culture, we don't show forth the reality of anything. Jesus said to his disciples, if you just love your friends, your righteousness is the same as the Pharisees and Sadducees. How are people going to know that you're distinctive on that basis? Do you know there are, there are church planning institutes out there that preach that you ought to target certain racial groups and not try to integrate? 
Those churches grow best that are, that are, that are you know, homogenous. I, 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 just, I just rebuke that, that whole idea. I just, I, I, even if it works, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. We have a window of opportunity here. As our culture has more racial tension, uh, we have an opportunity to show them a reality that they don't have, and this shows forth the, the truth of Jesus Christ. And so I want to challenge you, even right now, to join, join with me in prayer. Make this a part of your ongoing prayer. Father, make it happen here, Lord. We can't come up with some program to do this. We can't come up with some sort of rules to do this, Lord God. And, and we just look around at our culture and see that trying to legislate behavior and legislate talk rules doesn't do it, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that you, by your Spirit, Lord, would motivate people to begin to reach out and cross racial lines. Father, our prayer is not, out of, not, not to be politically correct or because it's a cool thing to do or a liberal thing to do or an anything to do, but simply because you spilt your blood for it, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that this bride, that this segment of the bride here could begin to reflect more of the reality of the oneness that you died that we would have. Lord God, let it happen. Raise up people, Lord God, who can begin to cross the, these barriers, Lord God. Give us a ministry to the inner city, Lord. God, this could be a unique thing where we can, we can begin to bridge the inner city and the suburb and begin to make that happen, Lord. However you want to use this particular body and every minister in this body, Lord, do it, we pray, and be glorified. It's for your glory, Lord. It's for, you are glorified when black and white are worshiping together in a way that you're not glorified when we're alone. And so, Lord God, we want to glorify you in every way. Be glorified, Lord. 